Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Roger Sherman, who is the Associate Organist Emeritus of St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle and President of Loft Recordings. He's also the host of Organ Loft, an hour-long weekly radio program about choral and organ music broadcasted throughout Washington and Oregon for more than 20 years. In today's inspiring conversation, Roger shares his wide experience recording organ music, and we also discuss his newest CD release called Bach Under the Influence. Let's go to the show. So, Roger, I'm so delighted that... um, uh, we're having this uh, um, inspiring conversation and I hope our listeners will get so much out of it because uh, um, let me start this way um, I remember meeting you for the first time in 2000 uh, about 15, what, 15 years ago in in Göteborg in, in, yeah. in Gothenburg in Sweden where this large North North German style Baroque organ was inaugurated, and you, uh, with Loft Recordings, you um, recorded, uh, I think, every recital there. Am I correct? Yeah. Every recital, yes. Yes. Two week. <laughs> Two week uh, marathon, right? Sometimes a few few recitals a, a day, right? A couple of yeah. them. Yes. Yes, uh, yes. Amazing, amazing uh, experience. And I, uh, uh, when I went to that uh, Orgrite New Church, uh, where this organ was, uh, I remember you um, recorded one particular recital: Pamela Reuter Finstra playing Thunderworks, right? Uh, yes. And, and improvisations based on on the Thunder excerpt, I think. And I saw this w- uh, large. Uh, uh, large microphone stands right and and i thought wow that's very very um unique i never i was never experiencing experienced before how organ recordings were made before so so i'm i was sort of uh, um and entered into a special situation there so do you remember that time oh yes quite well and you know uh Pamela and later recorded the complete works of Tunder on that organ. Yeah. Off recordings. And uh, it was a wonderful instrument and a wonderful situation there. Yeah. And she, she speaks very fondly of you and your work. Uh, and I, I say, you are the magician when it comes to organ, um, basically recordings, using special technology and special special. Uh, techniques that I believe help to recreate the original organ sound, right? Yes, the organ's uh, uh, a wonderful, uh, challenging instrument to record. As as you know, it's a family of instruments. It's not an instrument, and so every organ has uh, different quirks uh, and uh, different optimal microphone placements, and every room is different. As you know, the room is as much a part of the organ sound as uh, the organ itself, and um, Microphones listen differently than people do, and and they have to be placed in positions where they do their job the best. And it's uh, it's a it's a it's a challenge, and it's also very much fun to to make good re- recordings of pipe organs. Wonderful, wonderful, um, and uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, organ and uh, recording engineers use. Uh, 
you know some artificial techniques to enhance the sound do you also um, try to enhance the sound that it would be uh, more lively more more than natural or or you are a sort of purist well i i very rarely do that uh-huh. uh, and uh, i do that only when it's not possible to get uh, good results uh using um more natural means you might say yeah 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 um, I think the, the ultimately uh, the choice of microphones and uh, the placement of those microphones gives uh, most recording engineers uh, lots of latitude in producing the final sound. And uh, on, only if there's a, a time or a situation where there's a problem that cannot be solved, uh, then then you go to the toolkit. And I, I'll just say I'm not religious about um, avoiding those tools. I know how to use them when they're necessary, but I end up as it turns out that I rarely use them. Wonderful. Um, did you learn the craft of recording organ music yourself or you, did you did you apprentice apprenticed with somebody or did you, you studied somewhere? Um, well, I uh, that's a good question. I did not have formal education uh-huh. in uh, audio, but uh, from the time I was a teenager, uh, I was uh, I was interested in electronics and recordings in particular. Uh, as a young organist, I was I was more almost more interested in recordings of organs than I was live performances. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That world, uh, the world of the record in those days, opened up uh, the possibility for hearing instruments that I would never be able to see in person. And um, so I made my own electronics in, in high school, and when, when I was in the college age. Uh, I latched on to some recording engineers and went with them and recorded, you know, to listen and ask questions uh, while they recorded pro- various concerts and projects and and so on and got a good foundation, I think, in the uh, the uh, the science of it. And um, so uh, that's that's my background, I, I should say. Now that I've recorded maybe 300 recordings in, in the organ. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, experience is also a great teacher. It's amazing. Uh, do you prefer some part of the day or night for, for recording uh, when, you know, the special silence uh, or, you know, even the silent day is not the same as silent night, uh, we can think, in the church, right? How do you decide the time of the recording? <laughs> well, you try to do it when it's quiet. And uh, there's been... Uh, you never know uh, what what the situation is. We recently did a recording of um, Kimberly Marshall in Handel's Church in London, and uh, that church is on Hanover Square, which we later discovered the locals called Hangover Square. There was a bar right across the street, and we thought we would be recording from about midnight till maybe eight in the morning or so, and it turned out that there were people right outside the windows uh, all night long on uh, Saturday night. Or Friday night, I think uh, it was one Friday or Saturday. I don't remember now. But uh, when they finally left, the tube opens at uh, six in the morning, so they all got on the tube at six in the morning. We started finally to record, and then uh, just about an hour later, a jackhammer started down the street, uh, and we had to quit. <laughs> so <laughs> we ended up uh, recording on Sunday afternoon in the middle of the day, and that's when it was quiet, and we got our work done. And then recording in places uh, like um, in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, down was also a real challenge for sound because 
some of the churches there don't even have glass in the windows, so you really hear everything that's going on outside. And if it happens to be a pack of barking dogs that don't belong to anybody, you can listen to them on your headphones all night long. And uh, uh, one particular, this was recording Robert Bates, uh, one particular time they were barking all night long in, in uh, Tlacatawaya. And uh, finally at four o'clock in the morning, they went to sleep and uh, we re-recorded the last chords of every piece so that we could get a quiet ring out, you know, without the dog bark. And uh, so, yeah, noise is the, the key thing about uh, making recordings, uh, picking a time of day. Uh -huh. never it's so, it's so, you know, it reminds me of the experiences that organ builders have uh, when they try to record um, not record but tune and uh, maintain the instrument right the regular they always need also some quiet times and uh, especially if the organ is very large then it's very tricky to find a good silent time i think yes and sometimes uh you you can't make noise uh when it is silent uh I've recorded in more pla uh, several places where uh you know, there's homes nearby or the rectory is next door or something like that. And the last thing they want to hear is full organ sound at one o'clock in the morning through the windows. Yeah. So, you know, that's a consideration as well. And sometimes the uh, rectory of the of the church or, I don't know, the, the, the staff of the organization that the organ is in, 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 in this hall, for example, they don't understand what goes into this recording, right? What what organists and engineers uh, go through, and they they say, okay, just record whenever you want, or or pick a pick a couple of hours and it's done, right? Um, how long does it take to record? Can you record it in a couple hours? Probably not. Oh, for a typical CD organ CD, uh -huh. uh, we uh, usually it takes three sessions for us to do the recording plus editing time after that. That's most people are able to do their their work in that uh, that period of time. Uh -huh. so, yeah. so an editing session or recording session would be uh, anywhere from four to eight or more hours long. Wow, that's very st um, strenuous um, mentally, not only physically but mentally uh, job for the organist as well because if 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 they're doing several takes multiple takes and uh, if 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 you are sort of editing i imagine that uh, for example organist has to be very precise in picking the right tempo the 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 stable constant tempo for the entire episode if not the entire piece right if you glue the 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 episodes together later on when you edit is that a problem for, do you notice that oh yes uh, i mean some organists are very good at uh, maintaining a constant tempo through many takes if that's what it, if they need those others uh, are not sometimes they'll start faster and go slower as they <laughs> redo things and uh, so yes that can be a challenge if you get to the editing point and uh, realize that you the only measure you have uh, a good measure is one that's a different slightly different tempo than the rest of the piece <laughs> that you've got put together uh -huh. uh, there's little tricks you can do for things like that but um, it's editing editing things but uh, consistency is, is always an issue whenever you do an edit of any kind 
uh, consistency is the is the uh, issue, and uh, with with what you're splicing together, and uh, so no edit really is is without some consequence, uh, even if it's very small. Yes, yes, of course. Um, uh, do you uh, meet any organists who who don't want actually to edit their work? Just they play the 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 work one, two, th three times perhaps and uh, pick the best and uh, it's done? Yes. Uh, generally speaking, I would say that most of the organists that I record um, are very, very well prepared for the recording sessions uh -huh. and uh, many, of, many of them, a large number of them do record in one shot like that and maybe, uh, well for example, I just finished recording Joan Lippincott playing Orgobuchlein. And uh, she played every uh, piece in Orgobuchlein twice, and that was it. Yeah. It was done in two days. Um, David Yearsley, I recorded at Stanford once, and he did his entire recording in one day. That's because the day before that, which we had to, to do the recording, um, we had a couple days for a recording set aside for him. The airlines failed to deliver the bag with the microphone stands and and the uh, uh, cables, special cables and all that kind of thing. So they, they failed to put it on the little um, trolley, you know, the little moving uh, belt. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so it just sat next to the belt. Nobody knew where it was. They they couldn't find it anywhere. And then somebody eventually put it on the belt, and they got flown down to us in in uh, the Bay Area. But David did his whole recording in one night for his whole CD. Um, the great contest and uh, uh, Bill Porter also is very very uh, good um, he, he rarely needs to re-record things um, so yes. I mean, everybody is really quite quite well prepared these days I think of course you're working with extreme extremely um, extremely experienced organ masters I would say globally recognized and leading yeah. figures in the organ world that would be uh, very rare that that someone from this caliber probably would be um, you know uh, sight reading <laughs> sight reading a work for the yeah. COVID, right um, well it's it's a great privilege too to uh, go someplace hear a great organ and a great organist and delve into really good music it's oftentimes music that's not well known uh, and uh, so it's um it's it's a great thing to do. It's, it's a very enriching, personally enriching thing to spend time with these the people that are on our our record labels and uh, to listen to them play and talk about the music and talk about why they do it this way or why they do it that way or what's the real the correct way to do something. And um, so it, I I found it very enjoyable. And of course, uh, since you are an organist yourself. You you can understand what they talk and be be uh, you know uh, in in this on the same page basically and uh, even make some suggestions for them right to 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 uh, to and to make their interpretation maybe um, from your standpoint better I think yeah I um, I value my background as as an organist and a choir director and so on that that um, and we're we're playing in the same play space, you might say, yeah. and um, the um, there are certain things that are different about playing the or playing the organ uh, for a recording than say playing for a live audience, and uh, sometimes I can bring that experience to bear 
uh, and to the benefit of the player. And uh, of course, I do that as much as as uh, as, as the relationship will allow. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, giving the feedback uh, on their playing and and also supporting them. You know, the I think it's harder to play for a microphone than it is to play for an audience because an audience is always giving you feedback, whether you explicit or not, you know kind of what they're thinking, I think, uh, if you're a good organist. Um, but for the microphone, it's a pretty cold thing. Uh -huh. and, uh, yes. So uh, I think a lot of organists appreciate another set of ears in the room, someone to tell them they did a good job, someone to tell them that they did a particularly good job on this part or that part and that you like the registrations or have you thought about doing this? And, uh, you know, for variety's sake, how about uh, doing a, a different plenum on this piece than the last piece? So yeah. on and so on. Well, Loft Recordings, it's, it's, it's such a tremendously important company nowadays in the organ world, I think. Um, and leading, uh, can I say leading company in the recording world? Sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, because, uh, of course, there are many, many other, but uh, uh, the quality of your work uh, that you do is really uh, sets the standard for the entire industry. I think in 2000, when when um, when all these um, uh, Gothenburg Organ Academy recitals were recorded, and later on, when on this Orgrita New Church organs f uh, first CDs uh, like Hans Davidson, right, and uh, Pamela Reuter Finstra, and uh, and who else? Bill Porter, of course, uh, mm -hmm. recorded their works uh, with you. I think um, you set the standard for the future also to include the liner notes uh, and registrations and uh, large inf uh, a large large body of information about the organ which uh, which not necessarily was the case um, with other organ engineers or organ recording engineers do you think is it true to say that you set the standard for the future well we try to set a standard for ourselves which is uh you know, we are, we're customers too, in a way, uh, you know, that uh, what do we want to see when we buy uh, an organ CD? And, and of course, we want to see as much information as possible, especially if it's the first recording on a new instrument of significance. We want to know about the instrument. We want to see the stop list. If, if appropriate, we want to see what stops people use and so on. And uh, so we've always tried to produce uh, products that have our, uh, a rich uh printed uh, booklet component to them. And um, of course, being well recorded uh, as, as well, just in terms of the audio quality from the, from the day we started the company, it was our goal to have premier recording technology that is to the best presentation of the organ we could uh, in, uh, on audio. And for that, I, I just would like to mention my colleague, Eric Sikama, mm -hmm. who is uh, in Sweden, who is also a very, very fine recording engineer and um, he has done recordings for us as well that are absolutely top shelf. That's true. You cannot do this work alone, probably. Yes, you have to have some partners, uh, um, even during the same project. Or can you can you work alone uh, when recording? Oh, um, we our recordings have uh, numerous engineers. Yeah, I've probably done most of them. Uh, but uh, anything that Eric does, for example, we, we gladly and wonderfully accept. 
because his work, the quality of his work is very good. And there are a few others uh-huh. as well. We, we have rejected releases uh, that have not met our standards in terms of audio quality. And um, we, we, we fussy about it. Uh-huh. And <laughs> it's like an organ builder's job, right? Uh, or or um, um, artisan's work. Uh, it's basically an art. I, 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 should, I would really think that you are doing an... It's an art form uh, recording, right? Uh, uh, because... Uh, it's unique, it's personal, and it's really artistically very pleasing. Yeah, there is an artistic element to it. Uh, you, you have to start with the fact that um, not all music uh, is, is written to create the same effect. So to pick an extreme example, the way you would record Messian might be quite different than the way you perform 17th century organ dances, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that uh, one that sometimes the music is quite intimate and chamber-like. Uh, sometimes the, the music is impressionistic. And for those situations, you want to have a different musical result in the recording as well as the performance, even if it's the same organ. And uh, so you have to um, you have to buy into an artistic concept. And then the exact placement of microphones and the number of mics that you use. You know, there's no textbook that tells you exactly what the answer is to that uh, precisely. There's uh, rooms are different and organs are all unique and uh, you really have to make judgments about what is the most pleasing result and what serves the music and the performer's concept the best. That's right, that's right. And um, most recently, Roger, you released uh, this wonderful a CD called uh, Johann Sebastian Bach Under the Influence, right? On uh, St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle, Washington, which uh, I understand is uh, is the recording uh, from the earlier days, right? From 2001. Yes. On the, on the fabulous 1965 Flintrop. Um, can you tell us a little bit, uh, for starters, about this recording, uh, about the organ and the significance of the Flentrop uh, um, in comparison, for example, with other instruments of that period in, in the United States? Yeah, this, this was a very important instrument. It really, I think, changed organ building history in uh, the United States. Um, during this time, about this time, Epar Biggs, had a very popular radio program, and um, then uh, just before he was taken off the air, <laughs> uh, he had a Flintrop organ installed at, at Harvard, and so he moved from focusing on the weekly radio program to producing a series of recordings called Bach Organ Favorites. These were the most popular recordings that he ever made, and um, so when a large a new Flintrop, twice the size, came to Seattle, he came out to play the inaugural concerts. And uh, I was 15 years old at that time, and I went and heard him mm-hmm. as I was a fan of his records. But uh, uh, that aside, that personal note aside, it was really, really unusual for an Episcopal cathedral to have a Dutch organ. Uh, it was an instrument that was criticized from the very beginning as being an instrument unsuitable for playing Anglican liturgy and uh, so on. And, and uh, it was quite a, a, a bold step in a particular direction. And that was the, re- was the work of Peter Halleck. By the way, it is his birthday today. He's, he's no longer with us, but November 19th is his birthday. 
and um, his vision of uh, music at the cathedral, which was quite different than that at other Episcopal cathedrals, I think. His main uh, objective was to, ha to have an organ at the cathedral that could play the music of Bach. Mm -hmm. And in 1965, this was it. <laughs> and um, and that was the, the result of uh, uh, a lot of faith by some people and then the ability to raise enough money to, uh, to, to produce an instrument with the full-length 32-foot principle on the facade. It's a big organ, yeah. physically. And uh, fortunately, it's in a very, very good room acoustically. Uh, and um, so there are other instruments that followed. And soon after we had this sort of popular explosion of European uh, tracker organs uh, in the United States, which were, of course, aided by a good exchange rate for the dollar. Soon after that, we had started um, having American organ builders who are starting to build in that style and going to Europe and studying the antique instruments and and coming back and building their their ideas, uh, you know, executing their ideas of observations of the old instruments, and uh, then we ended up with an indigenous uh, cadre of organ builders, um, and this all s started, I think, when the Flintrop came to uh, to Seattle. That was the big boost that that sort of started things in that direction. Uh huh. Lucky, lucky West Coast, I, I, I would say, right? <laughs> that uh, it had Flentrop, it had you, Westfield, West, Westfield Center, and uh, of course, Loft Recordings. Well, and also John Brumbaugh and, John Brumbaugh Paul, and uh, Paul Fritz, Martin and of course, Martin <laughs> Pasi, right? Yeah. All these great figures that are still active uh, today, some of them at least. Uh, um, um, in in this free field and makes makes the entire country, I would say, global leader when it comes to uh, historically oriented organ builder, older building tradition and uh, performance practice as well. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Yeah, a great great um, coincidence, but maybe not a coincidence because uh, many people were prepared for that. Uh, the, the situation was ripe, right, for that to happen. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the, the Flintrop was a, a big, bold step in, in a direction that nobody thought we were going in. <laughs> mm -hmm. But after it happened, you know, it was, uh, I think people realized very quickly that it really was a very successful organ not just for playing Bach, but for playing romantic music as well. And um, so uh, it was it was quite influential. People went, they heard, they played it, and were convinced that it really was a better way to make organs. And um, and and they uh, they changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And 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 then of course uh, these later uh, landmark organs appeared uh, as Gene Bedian's organ in in. Um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, right, Opus 8, um, and also what uh, uh, Paul Fritz's and, um, of course, uh, John Brombo's instruments uh, set the, sta the standard also for the later generations as well. This is very early. We, we say, what is, 1965. It's, it's uh, in Europe, it's, uh, it's a very uh, strange time where everything was built... Um, Sort of in uh, in this orgel bewegung tradition and uh, with uh, not very good materials, I would say, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and in America it was different. Perhaps I don't know why, but 
but uh, these organs which were built in America at that time and later on uh, they're still very very important today while in in Europe from that period they uh, churches start to sell them you know and transfer them uh, to to other countries for example to Lithuania as well yeah, mm. yeah. so you're getting uh, all of western Europe's uh, 1960s organs in exactly Lithuania. like like yeah. German organs and um, and some of the English instruments some of them are are, are decent instruments but of course uh, nobody would uh, throw away or sell a you know an an, an organ that has a uh, tremendous significance for that place but uh, but but they they some somehow uh, get uh, get a feeling that they were not very good uh, at that time at in, in, in at least in our cases yeah you know i think the same thing has happened here the um there were a, a bunch of instruments uh installed shortly after the flintrop from uh builders in europe and uh that were not very high quality instruments but people thought well if it's a tracker organ it's uh, you know it, it'll it's going to be a better instrument and it was uh these these instruments that we got here are now also being sort of um, discarded or take move from their original locations to someplace else. And uh, so, you know, it just goes to say that uh, an organ is more than its action. The action may lead you in a particular direction, but there's uh, voicing and pipe materials and acoustics and placement and all these things that make a difference. And uh, the Flintrop organ has, has withstood the test of time, I think, in that way. But uh, there are other organs from that era and slightly after that have not. Yeah. And in this recording that that we're talking about, Bach under the influence, uh, you chose uh, to showcase some of the most intricate works of Bach, right? And not only of Bach. In the first, uh, in the first uh, part of the program, um, there are some fascinating pieces by other composers. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, uh, the concept of the con of the concert was that the first half of the program would be composers who had an influence on Bach or may have had an influence on Bach, and uh, the second half would be Bach influencing others. So um, I uh, chose pieces by, I mean, there's some very obvious composers that would have had some uh, potential influence on Bach, certainly uh, Vivaldi. Uh, Di Grini also, since Bach copied, had this uh, score of uh, his organ works. Uh, Jan Adam Reinken, uh, it was a very important influence, we think. Georg Berm, Pachelbel, who was his older brother's organ teacher, and so forth. So um, that was kind of fun. I didn't uh, attempt, this is not a scholarly uh, paper on who influenced Bach. It was simply in a, a premise for, for a recital to listen to some of the composers that may have had influence on Bach and and so on, and then one might suppose in the af in the second half that Bach was establishing his legacy or influencing others uh, through his work, and uh, so it's, it was a it was a good premise for a, for a concert program, I think. Yeah, of course, I see that that for example this. Uh, um, this uh, Vivaldi concerto in F major. It's not very often played piece, right? Uh, I would say even today. Not on the organ. Not on it's the organ, yeah. It may be played more frequently on harpsichord, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but I think it, it works very beautifully on the organ. Yeah. 
and this of course Vater Unser in Himmelreich by Böhm this uh, immortal I should say piece that uh, that that every organist dream is to play on the North German organ in in a large room right uh, on a real yeah. historical organ uh, but uh, does it sound well on on, on Flentrop? It does. It does. Um, and uh, for the solo stop, I mean, you can use just about anything. But for the solo, I used the group positive eight foot principle with the eight foot cadet and the eight foot quintadena uh -huh. together and tremulant. And it's a very beautiful sound, a very vocal sound. Oh, imagine that you you did that in two thousand one. Yes. Uh, because um, it's it's such a s people are still doing this today to this day and uh, and it sort of uh, continues this tradition to play solo voices on on gentle principal sound voc very vocal sound without mm -hmm. the need to include the mutations right or 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 reeds for example sure right? absolutely and I think this this particular piece it's the uh, you know the Lord's Prayer the affect of the text and the music. Uh, lends itself very well to that kind of simple vocal uh, uh, style. And um, for this particular one, I, there's a couple different versions, I guess, I think, of, the, of this piece, um, scores for this piece that have alternate ornamentation. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of mixed things up a little bit, if I remember correctly, <laughs> that um, I used uh, ornamentation from, from both scores uh, to produce something that was a little bit different than the normal performance you'd hear of that piece. Mm -hmm. It's a very, as you know, the, the solo, solo is highly ornamented. Highly ornamented, exactly. Um, and some organists uh, value very much their organ scores of that piece and uh, get much, uh, much uh, uh, stress if the score is not uh, the same, for example, if they're playing from a different edition, right? Uh, yes. Of this piece, particular Fatterunzer uh, by Böhm. Um, mm -hmm. But um, do you think that uh, these ornaments can also be uh, somewhat free, more freely improvised as well? Oh yes. I mean, I think uh, I, you know it depends on what stops you're using, what kind of gestures work particularly well. You might find something that is a little bit awkward, or something that um, you might add that uh, is particularly effective. I think uh, the judgment of the former is uh, for a particular situation is is uh, is a factor in the successful performance, and uh, so I, I I think you should, as a as an organist, the the, the discipline you you should be able to play and understand what the composer has written for ornamentation, and after that you should be free to to embellish on it if uh, or simplify if uh, you think it's more effective in the particular situation you're in. So. Yes, I think musical judgment is uh, an important part of it, and uh, you should have some. <laughs> yeah, of course, good taste, right? Good taste, as always, yeah. as the French say, always. And, uh, of course, these mutations uh, would be represented very well in De Grigny's Tears Entire piece, mm -hmm. I, should, I, sh I should guess, right? Uh, how is the cornet sound uh, on that flintrop? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, one of the uh, concessions, I guess you'd say, uh, in the stop list at uh, St. Mark's uh, from being a pure Dutch or German style organ was the uh, addition of a tear stop on the grate. 
and uh, so uh, it's possible to play uh, the the the, uh, the TRS combination on on the Great Manual. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a Dutch sesquialtra on the uh, root positive, which means, of course, that there's a break at tenor C, which makes it less suitable for playing TRS on ties. Uh, and so um, we're fortunate to have the that uh, TRS. Uh, which would not be a normal stop for a Dutch or German organ on the grate. And uh, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful cornet. It's not quite that wonderful French flute cornet that you hear on the root positif of French organs, but it is uh, very effective musically nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And I would, I see that Bovenwerk, the third manual, doesn't have the Tiertz uh, sound, right? No, it does not. Mm -hmm. So you have to be... You have to choose either from Rukwerk or 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 from the Hauptwerk, Hauptwerk. Yes. Some something like that. Great, great, great choices. Wonderful. And uh, what about the second half of the program? Right, uh, when you decided that Bach also was influencing others, of course, um, you chose uh, BWV five hundred forty-one. This magnificent, uh, lively, and uh, and uh, joyful Prelude and Fugue in G major, right? Uh, yes. Can you, can you tell us a little bit the reasoning? Why particu this particular piece here? Well, I think the, uh, the reason that it's on this half of the program was that Bach um, either wrote the piece or rewrote it, <laughs> we're not sure which, um, in order to help his his oldest son, Wilhelm Friedemann, get an organ job. Mm -hmm. So this was his audition piece. And um, so the idea was that uh, uh, he would write this, this virtuosic, brilliant piece of music for his oldest son that would wow the committee and, uh, and get him the job. And that is, of course, exactly what happened. That was also a great way to start the second half of a concert. Uh -huh. And we're talking about the Dresden, right? Sophia's Church. Yeah. Of the church, yes, in Dresden. Uh -huh. Wonderful, and of course, it, it was a great choice because he got the position. <laughs> and uh, um, I hope that uh, Wilhelm Friedemann also improvised and played some of his music as well on that audition. Do we know that, uh, or, uh, or I don't, I don't know. I don't uh, know he, either. But I do. One thing that's kind of interesting is the, um, you know, that the prelude has the the tempo indication of vivace. Uh -huh. which is unusual. I, I don't know of any other Bach preludes and fugues that have tempo indications on their first movement like that, um, which would maybe indicate something a little unusual. Um, so it is a, if you play it, you know, as a, at, at a vivace tempo, it's, it is also more dazzling and it, but it's, it's of course hard to do, <laughs> uh -huh. but, it has um, a particular character, I think, that uh, is, makes is very exciting, and and uh, if you can imbue the performance with that sense of of, uh, of liveliness uh, that vivace implies, the word vivace implies uh, liveliness, then uh, it's it's uh, even more effective as a piece. Of course, and is the acoustics of this room, of this uh, church, cathedral, uh, suitable for that lively playing, very fast playing, for polyphonic playing as well? Yeah, it's it's really quite remarkable. There, there's about six seconds of reverberation, but the room is very, very clear, 
and um, it's it's clear uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, it has uh, very large windows which reflect treble, and uh, that helps. There are four large pillars in the room. The room is almost cubical in size, and those pillars clarify the sound. If your ear hears something coming off of the pillar, it, it helps organize the rest of the sound for, for the person. And um, then there's also, even though the acoustics have a, a very long reverberation time, there's enough of a drop right at the beginning that your ear easily distinguishes between the reverberant sound and the uh, original sound, the, the direct sound. And uh, overall, it produces a very clear effect, and, uh, but also one that's, that's very much bathed in its reverberation. And where did you choose to place the microphones? Out in the room or on the or next to the organ? The there are two microphones and they're hung in front of the organ, um, as a spaced as a spaced pair. Uh -huh. and so this microphone placement was uh, and the microphone choices were made by Glenn White, who at that time a recording engineer, a friend of mine, and uh, he. Um, he made the first recordings on the organ after it was installed. The very first recording was made by Fenner Douglas from Oberlin, who later became my organ teacher. Uh, and uh, so this recording is uh, dedicated to the both of them, in fact. Uh -huh. And the front cover of the recording is a near copy of that LP uh, cover art on the LP that they made with Fenner Douglas. Uh-huh, uh-huh, Fenner Douglas, of course. We cannot underestimate his influence here and mm. his his um, um, importance for the American organ culture, uh, yeah. of course. Yeah. And um, and uh, what about the uh, these Schubler chorals, Wachet auf and Vosolik fliehen hin? Um, these are so fascinating uh, uh, sounding pieces, uh, right? Every every organist knows them by heart, probably. Uh, for, uh, arrangements from the cantatas by Bach. Uh, uh, di what kind of reed did you use uh, for the for the solo stop, uh, as in Wachetauf, for example? I used the uh, great trumpet. Trumpet, of course. And uh, it works very very well um, and uh, for the second chorale I used the um, two-foot cornet and uh, reed stop in the pedal with the nocturne which is a two-foot and a one-foot combined and I play that down an octave from where it's written and um, it works very nicely you know these six chorales are all transcriptions uh, from movements of Bach cantatas mm -hmm. Trio movements from Bach cantatas, and it's very close to the end of Bach's life that he publishes these things. And I think uh, the case for why why they are on this part of the program is that uh, you know the choral works that of the cantatas and so forth are the largest database of music that Bach had. His choral stuff he wrote more choral music than anything else. And in his lifetime, only one of his first cantatas was published. The rest of it was all unpublished music. And um, he could see that his legacy in that department might be going away when he died, uh, as the style of music and the style of theology was all changing, and he was uh, this so moving away from the kind of music he was writing. And so 
his idea here of taking some of the popular movements and uh, from these cantatas and making organ trios out of them, which were a more saleable commodity than a cantata score, uh, was a way of telling people, go look at these cantatas for uh, great melodies and, and, and wonderful obligatos. Uh, there's a lot of material there. It's just sort of like a pointer to this database of music that he wrote. Uh, and so that's why I chose to include Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring, as, as we call it here in, in uh, the English world, because it it's, can be treated, it's also movement from a cantata and can be treated in exactly the same way. And uh, I think it's Bach saying, don't just take these six, go look for others, you know, uh -huh. and, and uh, get to know this, this repertoire, this larger repertoire that he had written uh, for, for uh, choirs and, and singers. Yeah, that's exactly right. He influences influences others uh, through the, his vocal works as well, but um, yeah. not too many pieces were um, known uh, at that time, and he chose to publish them and uh, to direct the readers and the players through those uh, right uh, compositions, organ compositions, arrangements to these later. Uh, magnificent cantatas that he created also. Uh, you know, uh, we cannot really forget uh, his uh, Art of Fugue that you include also the canon a la duodecimo, right? Uh, mm -hmm. This is uh, probably um, one of the most intricate canons in the entire uh, cycle of Art of Fugue, right? Uh, can, can you tell us uh, why, why did you choose this particular canon? Oh, <laughs> It's just an incredible piece. I, how could you not choose it? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that uh, tremendous uh, uh, conflict between the, the triplets rhythm and the, uh, the duple rhythms. Uh, it's, it's just a great little piece. And it was just meant to be a taste of Art of Fugue, you know, just a, a little hors d'oeuvre, you might say. Because mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't possibly, on a program like this, you could, you could have many, many, many pieces and sometimes the audience has to go home, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but there was just this little taste, and I think uh, of all those canons, uh, that this is a particularly uh, clever and uh, compelling one to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not too, um, as uh, Adolf Scheibe would say, not too dry, right? He criticized no. uh, uh, Bach for being too dry and unmusical. Uh, but um, uh, I, I'm not criticizing Bach in any way, but uh, but for general audience, probably this piece uh, really gives a glimpse to, to what mastery has Bach achieved in polyphonic writing and in the scientific, uh, even um, s scientific canon writing, right? Mm -hmm. um, that uh, is still accessible to the general audience, I think. Oh yeah, I think so. This is, uh, this is a very melodic theme, uh, particularly after you get through the opening little trilly, trill part there. Uh, it's a very melodic theme. It's easy to hear and recognize, and it's only a two-minute piece, three-minute piece. And um, I think it's a, the audience likes it. And if you pick some interesting registrations, and uh, it's, it's a, just like I said, it's an order. It's, it's a nice little... Uh, a piece substance but not very long mm -hmm. wonderful wonderful choice actually and and this prelude and fugue in c major of course bwv 547 am i correct in saying that it's probably the last 
prelude and fugue that Bach wrote for the organ. It may be. It I may am. be, right? We, we don't yeah. really know for sure. But it looks like like the the last great, at least great prelude and fugue. Yeah, and uh, what an amazing piece it is. <laughs> it is, yeah. One cannot uh, get um, get enough of the prelude uh, uh, ritornellos in in various C major, F, ma F major, and uh, various B flat major, F minor. These even distant uh, keys also reappearing uh, in 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 contrast with with other material sequences and others. Uh, but also this magnificent fugue, right? That that. Uh, yeah that is in what five five parts five voices with with augmented pedal can you tell us a little bit what you experienced in playing this fugue well the fugue is monumental and it's quite unusual in, in a number of respects uh one uh one respect is that the fugue theme is only one measure long <laughs> and um almost every measure in the in the whole piece has this theme in it somewhere somehow uh, not all, but very close to all of them. And, uh, of course, it, it's uh, the four parts that are in the hands, which is uh, a little bit more than usual for an organ. Usually it's three for a few, three in the hands. But it's four parts in the hands, and it goes for quite a long time until the very end when the fifth voice finally comes in in the pedal. And in this case, the pedal plays it in double-length notes. Um, and um, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to hear and to play. And... As you know, the, the, both the prelude and the fugue have a uh, similar ending, don't they? They have yeah. these uh, large chords and, and uh, dramatic pauses. And um, that, that's the one thing that ties them together. Otherwise, they're, they're completely unrelated, it seems. But I, I just wanted to point out that the first half of the recital, the Vivaldi piece, has that same feature in it in the third movement. And um, so... Uh, it's the uh, it's an idea it's an idea musical idea that uh, concludes both halves of the concert that is parallel and uh, a possible choice that uh, uh, where did uh, Bach uh, receive this idea of making dramatic pauses right maybe he looked at Vivaldi too uh, we don't know but it's it's possible of course yeah and Vivaldi of course was a great influence on Bach uh, as we know now particularly uh, the concerto style from Vivaldi and the northern Italian composers. Um, but I think Bach was something of a musical sponge. I think he just learned things from anyone he, anyone he could or anywhere he could or any how he could. And, um, you know, all of his pieces, uh, all of them are unique. You know, it's not like he's trying to write the same prelude and fugue over and over again with slight variations or change of key each piece is so different than the others uh there's only one pasacalia you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> and um so um this uh, this last work is is an example of his uh i think of his creativity the prelude in particular it's just a c major scale he says oh, what's going to be more simple than a c major scale how can you create a great piece of music of tremendous complexity and rhythmic buoyancy using only a scale yeah. and there you know so this, the art is is displayed by the fact that the material he starts with is not interesting in and of itself that interesting but what he does to it is fabulous and um, 
that that is the art and his bag of tricks of all the different things that he is capable of, of imagining and, and creating can be applied to something that's very simple, like a C major scale, and to produce a fabulous result that is ultimately, I think, Bach's genius. Absolutely, I agree with you. And um, every time we play Bach, Roger, right, it's, um, it leaves a deep imprint, uh, not only in our souls probably but also in in the listeners they cannot really uh, forget um, what they heard I, I i hope that your listeners from 2001 uh, of that recital uh, remember for a long time this these these notes and pieces magnificent pieces and uh, and you made this um, uh, masterpiece recording uh, uh, that later can be also serve as a souvenir for for they, their taste as well. Yeah, it's um, Bach is special, isn't he? Yeah, he, he is, and uh, especially in, inspiring. As your work is inspiring, Roger, uh, uh, especially in Westfield, Westfield Center, as the leader of this organization who specializes in in uh, historical performance practice, right? Um, we cannot underestimate your weekly uh, radio um, uh, radio organ shows uh, that you that you basically. Uh, produce right uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, uh, how you come come uh, come up with with these ideas about with about uh, music on these shows are always they taken from the loft recordings or somewhere else also uh, no the the organ loft is the name of the program and and uh, I've been doing it now for more than 20 years it's uh, um, an hour-long program. It's broadcasts on several stations in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. It's about half choral and half organ, mm -hmm. roughly speaking, but that doesn't mean we have many programs that are organ only and, and some that are choral only. But I, I choose here to focus on things that have connections to the Pacific Northwest. So uh, this means local organists, local organ builders, local composers, uh, whether they're here or uh, whether they're playing somewhere else in the world, or or things and loft recordings, of course, uh, because I'm local <laughs> as well. And um, but uh, I do play things from all sorts of sources, not just uh, not just loft. Mm -hmm. but the one thing that sort of ties it together, what I, I hope ties it together, is a sense that the the program reflects the the organ and choral uh, culture that exists in our part of the world. What we like to listen to, what our people who are here, our artists that are here, what kind of uh, music they make and how they make it. And to make that connection and keep uh, the demand really for this kind of high level music and performance and high level music composition, high level of, uh, of instruments, um, that we maintain it and reinforce it and develop audiences for it uh, through the use of that, that program. I should say that uh, together with our good friend Michael Baron and his Pipe Dreams, your work, uh, Organ Loft, is so tremendously important for the entire organ, organ world. Uh, um, because uh, in our days, organ culture is not particularly well 
represented in in the media I, I should say right because of many various reasons of course uh, one of them might be of uh, speciality of 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 this music uh, specifically specifically interested interesting for organists and not always uh, for all organists but just if a few you know connoisseurs ba basically but what you're doing is 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 so tremendously um i think uh, uh, it, it matters a lot to the people who value your work very much i think thank you Thank you uh, very much. And I hope you you can continue this this uh, generous and inspiring work work for many years in the future. Thank you. I hope so too. <laughs> so thank you so much, Roger, uh, for this wonderful and inspiring conversation. It it's better than I ever imagined, and uh, and I hope people will get so much out of it. Not only about uh, how we talked about uh, how how organ uh, recordings are produced and made and recorded right but we talked about uh, the intricacies about choosing the program for the recording and about this flentrop uh, landmark organ that came in in the united states in 1965 and of course um, about other things that uh, that uh, are needed to further our organ culture across the globe so thank you so much roger and you can you tell us our listeners um, where can they find you and your work online? Uh, the website is gothic-catalog.com, and that's catalog with, that ends in a G, not G-U-E. And uh, so if you go there, you will see all of the CDs that we produce, and um, you'll also see a little description of the Organ Loft radio program and uh, other information uh, as, as well. Excellent. I'll ma make sure that I'll include uh, this link in the description of this of this conversation, and I hope uh, our listeners will find uh, your work uh, inspiring as I will, for sure. Thank you. So uh, keep keep uh, working the great uh, work that you're doing, and uh, uh, I hope to uh, talk to you about your your next recording, uh, uh, maybe maybe on another landmark organ of the United States. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.